we're in this study on, uh, on the last seven statements of Christ on the cross. And I can't just jump into it like that and just kind of laissez-faire. This is huge. When you think about it in the grand scheme of all the things that Jesus said over the course of His life, and you're down the last breathing moments when He is straining for air, suffocating, drowning in His own blood, these are important for us to camp in here and stay in here as we lead up to that great celebration. There's a lot of pain involved in here as he unpacks a, a, a lot of this. And pain is just a part of life. I don't know if you figured that part out, but it seems like pain is everywhere. And any time you're in a relationship or have friendships or on a team or whatever, there's going to be pain involved. Last week we started off with this verse. I want to start off with it again, Second Corinthians 2. It says, if anyone has caused pain. And the reality is, is things don't typically cause us pain unless we mishandle the things. Um, but it's the people that cause us pain. People, relationships, broken things, uh, uh, broken trust, different things like that. And as this pain comes upon us, what do you do with it? So ask yourself that question. What lasting success have you had in pain management? If your expectations are dashed in a, in a relationship situation, what happens? The pain of disappointment comes upon you. You face that pain of disappointment, disillusionment, if you will, of that person, of what they said, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, betrayal. Uh, somebody breaks trust with you. It's a broken trust in your relationship. And it hurts, that, 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 that pain of a broken trust that I was vulnerable, and yet you took it and you, you, you mistreated it. Sickness and disease. The neurological systems of our body that God made them. Indicate pain or indicators of pain. Tell us where we're hurting and, and hopefully we get answers to why the pain is there. Disobedience to man's laws will result in the pain of justice system. You'll face your time in court. You'll pay that, that uh, high speed award that you got in the car the other day. It's something like that. You'll, you'll, you'll experience the pain of justice in the process of life. You disobey God. I mean, this is the reality. There's an eternal separation that's pretty painful when you say eternal on the front end of that. But that is life. Now, we would like to think that life isn't going to be painful. We would live the right enough, do the right enough things, live the right kind of life, and all the pain will, will go away. That's just not reality. The yin and the yang, no. The karma, no. It's not always going to all balance out in the end. They're going to be dealing with injustices of our own life. We're going to deal with the injustice of life. Life isn't fair. If you're taking notes, it's a good place to start. Life isn't fair. What do you do with the, the, the unfairness of life? With the life that, 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 that comes across? And Jesus made it plain. That even He, in all of His powers and, and omnipotence and omniscience, He is not even going to write all of the unfairnesses out there. He says it's going to have sunshine on the evil and, on, and good. He's going to send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You can't get away from it. So the reality is, is that if you're looking for a fair life, if you're looking for a just life, you're in the wrong life. This is the wrong cosmos that you're living in. And I don't know of another one out there you can go live in, but this cosmos does not offer us a fair, equal, all things balance out in the end. What do you deal with that? Even Christ going to the cross was not fair, if you think about it like that. It was not fair for Him to suffer on our behalf. 
Thomas Kelly said this, when you talk about the cross, he said, God, out of, out of the pattern of his own heart, has planted the cross along the road of holy obedience. That phrase has stuck with me all week long. That God has planted the cross along the road of holy obedience. That even as you walk with God and talk with God and live for God, that there's going to be the cross that you will experience. The pain of the cross, the symbol of the cross, the death of the cross. Even Jesus said, if you want to follow me in Luke 9, 23, you're going to have to carry your cross daily. A part of daily walking and living, it's going to be encountering a cross. Cross is a symbol of suffering and it says something to us. And a lot of ink, pardon the pun, but a lot of ink has been spilled trying to define the spilt blood of Christ and how we're supposed to carry the cross and how we're supposed to live in the cross and how we're supposed to carry it on a daily basis. And so hopefully today as we look at this passage as we in this series, as we look at the last seven statements of Christ on the cross... We don't only look at the cross, we listen to the cross. That as we listen and look at the cross, hopefully today we'll put our arms at least a little bit around what it means to to carry that cross daily. Yes, it is, first of all, Christ is our Redeemer, our Savior. But hopefully we can also learn from Him in an exemplary way on how to live our life. Last week we talked about the first two of the seven statements of Christ on the cross. Now, we'll deal with it in time scope here. We're looking at six hours. Is what it took for Him to be nailed to the cross and to breathe His last breath. And in that six-hour period of time, we're only in the first three hours so far as we're looking at this. Last week, we talked about the first, uh, the first statement. Oh, oh, by the way, let me tell you this about Christ. He went gladly to the cross. Just as we should gladly get up each day and carry the cross. He said in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 that he endured the cross. But what does it say? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Did he like why he had to go to the cross? Absolutely no, he despised it. But he went to the cross with joy. So as we live out our life, as we carry our cross, whatever that means, hopefully we'll get some definition to that today. But as we carry out and live out our cross, our life of Christ, hopefully we'll do it with joy, just as He lived it with joy. So last week we talked about the first one. The first first statement, He actually says it to abusers in the midst of the abuse. He said, Father, forgive them. He's speaking of the Roman soldiers who are stripping Him naked and gambling for his clothes. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, notice that he was within earshot of the soldiers, but he didn't talk directly to the soldiers. He talked directly to the Father. This is important about forgiveness. You've got to get this down. Because forgiveness is not, doesn't come, or you don't grant forgiveness when somebody apologizes. Forgiveness happens in your heart, and it's between you and God. And it should happen as soon as possible. Notice that Jesus, why he was being offended, was in the process of forgiving. I know that's a spiritual experience. That's why I don't think you can ever fully embrace, give, experience, walk in, or give forgiveness until you have experienced it through Christ. But while his offenders were gambling for his clothes, mocking him, 
he was saying, Father, forgive them. Big statement. Not always easy. The second statement he made, and when we talked about it last week, was he looked at the thief on the cross. As the thief, one of the thieves on the cross was actually confessing Christ, saying, you, you, you're not dying here justly. We're here because we deserve to be here. Whatever thievery he involved himself in, evidently it was worthy of death. We don't have any other history. We don't know anything else that was going on. What they were stealing, who they were stealing from. Was it Herod? Was it just a lot of money and they just kind of spent? What? What? I don't know. But the fact is he knew he was getting his just reward. But he looked at Christ and he confessed Christ as the perfect son of God. And what does Jesus turn around and do today? You will be with me in paradise. So you have two different statements. One to the to the abusers or actually to God about his abusers. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But was there reconciliation? No. Forgiveness doesn't mean reconciliation. Forgiveness is between you and God for the offense that was committed against you, for the offenses that you commit. That's between you and God, okay? Reconciliation happens whenever there is contrition, whenever there is remorse. And the thief that was hanging there on the cross did just that. This is a good life principle for all of us. Forgiveness is what we freely give regardless of our offender's contrition or, or, or repentance or regret. Anything you can put in there. I need to do that because it's an issue of my own heart. I'm being offended reconciliation however happens comes comes into reality when the person is broken and contrite broken and repentant the thief on the cross was broken and repentant those are the first two statements that jesus makes he makes he makes one about the people who are offending him he makes one to a fellow convicted guy who's being justly tried and convicted and in, in, in sentenced but the third statement he makes to his believers to his most loyal believers. Take your Bibles. We find in the book of John chapter 19. The third statement is a different, different, different demographic of people. This is to his loyal, faithful followers. Now, when you look at this story, you're going to find when we get to the end of it, and we're going to kind of read a, a, a fairly long passage of Scripture so we can get it in context. But we're going to find that who is left are the people standing at the cross of his disciples. Everybody else is dispersed. Everyone else is betrayed. Everyone else is abandoned. Everyone else has moved on. Everyone else is, is run into hiding. And here, standing there left at the foot of the cross is the next persons, if you will, that Jesus speaks to. Beginning in verse 17 of, of John 19, he says, And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Now, last week we talked about the word Calvaria comes from the Latin word, also the skull. So here you got different languages coming into play here. Verse 18, there they crucified him. And with two others on either side, we don't know which one on the right or the left was the repentant one. Pilate also wrote an inscription on the cross, or put, uh, put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now this was an insult, okay? Because the very reason the Jews wanted Jesus dead is because he was professing himself as the Messiah, as the King, as the Anointed One. So they, this is almost a mockery into the face of these Jews. And he wanted to make sure everyone saw that as, as he's putting it out there 
for them. Uh, and, and so he makes it sure, he gets it in several different languages. Verse 20, many of, of the Jews read this inscription in the place uh, um, where Jesus was crucified near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Pilate, come on now. Uh, this is my interpretation. Don't write that. He's not our king. But rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. Get out of my face. You've taken up my time. I've given you what you want. You can go crucify your guy now. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took the garments. And by the way, they would wear about five different pieces of clothing. You can go ahead right now and count the pieces of clothing that you're wearing right now. They, carry, they wore about five different things from head to toe. Undergarments, outer garments, uh, uh, head wraps, sandals, different things like that. They take him and they strip him naked. Rated R naked is what they strip him to be. And you see that because they took off four parts of clothes and one part uh, for each soldier. But there was also the tunic. And it was one piece and they kept it. It was seamless. And, they, and in verse 20, so they said to one another, let us not tarry it, but cast lots for it and see whose it shall be. This is that it would fill the scriptures. Because it says in Psalms, it says they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Now, that's the story that we heard last week. But I want you to look at the next word. But. But standing by the cross of Jesus. By standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother. And his mother's sister, Mary, wife of Clopas. Mary Magdalene. And Jesus saw his mother... And the, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. And he said to his mother, here's the third statement that Jesus made. Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, as we look at this story again, let's get the characters of the cross. We're not talking about the soldiers. We're not talking about the thieves hanging on his right and his left. We're not talking about them today. We're going to talk about a different demographic, a different set of people. We're going to talk about the people who were standing at the foot of the cross, not gambling at the foot of the cross, not hanging on a cross. We're going to talk about people standing at the foot of the cross, and there was only four. Now, think about that for just a moment. He's fed 5,000. He's fed 4,000. He's, he's healed demoniac people. He's, he's, he's made the lame walk again. He's made the deaf hear again. He's made, helped the blind see. Where are they? They're gone. Vanished. Like a lot of us, I'm afraid, would do if we were ever put, put to the knife or put to the test. Because we love God in the blessings. We don't want to walk with God in the cross. We like God when He's giving, but we don't like life when it's taking and demanding of us. Remaining there are three Marys and a John. Sounds like a bad joke, right? That's true. There's Mary, mother, the mother of Jesus. There's Mary, wife of, uh, of Clopas, which is the aunt of Jesus, which I'm just, uh, I, it's, cause it says right there, it says it's Mary's sister. Now, can you imagine having, it's the only time Mary of Clopas is mentioned even in the New Testament. So we don't know much about her. But, but, but can you imagine, you have, your name is Mary and your sister's name is Mary. Well, it makes it easy for the mom. That's the only advantage. Mary and everyone comes. All right? So that's, that's the only thing I can make out of it. And then there's also Mary Magdalene, a female disciple of Christ who Jesus had healed from being possessed of demons. And then there's John. That's it. That's all that's left. 
And in this moment of suffering and pain and betrayal and abandonment, I have to believe in my heart of hearts as much as Jesus was hurting physically. And you can't get away from that. He was also hurting emotionally. For the betrayal, for the abandonment, rolling through his mind had to be all that he experienced. But in this moment... How did he adjust? How did he deal? How did he process through the pain of abandonment and the pain of of one moment they're saying, uh, hail him, king of the Jews, and the next moment they're saying, nail him? How did they deal with that? And listen, the, the reality is the cross that we speak of. The cross of carrying the cross and living with the cross and dying for Christ is not so far removed from our day and age. I don't know if you caught it this past week in the news where there were 33 Christians that were persecuted, killed in North Korea. And you didn't hear that on the news, did you? But you Google it and you'll find that there's a missionary from South Korea that was going into North Korea and he was sharing the gospel. uh, And he actually helped to start 500 underground churches. Sounds like New Testament times to me. Because he's captured and 33 other believers are captured and they were executed this past week. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus endured the cross. We must be willing to step up and endure the cross. What does that have to do with me? We're in America. We don't have to deal with that. I get it. But I just had to take an opportunity just to mention this for a moment. Because there's some real life persecution that happens in our day and age. And we as our Christians in our Christian culture just sometimes miss it. We've asked us to go to the cross for the, for a 40 day, 46 day period as a church. Last week we spoke of it. We talked of observing Lent for the first time as a church. And we encouraged you to, to, to take on something that you'll put aside and, and do without for a period of time. But if you'll notice that there's 46 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday, but yet it's a 40-day fast because you don't fast six of those days. You don't fast on Sundays. That's a day of celebration. So that if you're just observing that, and there's guides in the front uh, in, at the Guest Central if you want to pick those up. But let's come back to Jesus now. Three Marys, one John. What goes on? How does he process through his pain? How do they process through their pain? There are two responses. I want to point them out to you. One is the compassion. Compassion is the emotional response. Compassion is what I think emotionally we should engage in when we see injustice, when we see suffering. Notice what Jesus did in this passage of Scripture. Jesus saw. Now, again, i got to get you into the situation. Jesus is bleeding to death. Jesus is hanging on a cross. Jesus' life is being taken from him. Jesus had been betrayed and all, all this kind of stuff. But yet, in spite of all of that, Jesus was able to see the people around him. He saw Mary, 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 and John. He saw them. He looked at them. He felt what they felt. Sometimes I'm afraid we look past when we should look at. We look past the hurting around us because we're so focused on our pain that we miss the hurting that's right at our feet. Jesus did not. 
If we can learn anything from Christ's example today, let's look around and let's look past our own pain and suffering and our own injustice around us and let's find somebody that is hurting and let's have compassion on them. Let us, let us, let us become more like God because that's exactly who God is. He is full of compassion. Psalm 116 verse 5. God is full of compassion. James chapter 5 verse 11. He is full of compassion. Multiple times in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, He is full of compassion. Now, what is compassion? He had His own physical pain. He had His own emotional loss. He was going through it all. But I want to zero in on Mary, His mother, and John, His disciple. And before we talk about what He did, I want to talk about why He did what He did. We can skip to the end real quickly. And we can all get a to-do list and walk out of here and feel like i got to do more. But it's not that. We've got to start with the why before we go to the what. He felt compassion. He saw them. He felt compassion for them. He saw what they were missing. He saw his best friend was grieving. He saw his mother is now losing her firstborn son. There is an injustice. This is not right. And he felt compassion. And he did something. Because that's what compassion is. Compassion is not sympathy. Don't confuse the two. Sympathy is an emotion that you feel for someone who's in pain, someone who's in loss. Empathy is an emotion you can empathize with somebody because you've gone through a similar thing. Maybe it's cancer, maybe it's loss, maybe it's divorce, maybe it's this. You can empathize with someone. It's neither of that. Compassion is not that. Compassion or sympathy and empathy are an emotion that happen inside of you. Compassion moves you to action. Compassion, you see it, you feel it. And you respond to it. Compassion changes your life. Compassion is love with skin on. Compassion is whenever you take your empathy and sympathy and you do something with it. Notice all the times that Jesus modeled compassion again. Matthew chapter 9, he said he saw the crowds. He had compassion. And what does he do? Pray earnestly to the Lord. There was a physical response to his emotional feelings. Also, he saw the crowd. He had compassion. What did he do? He healed the sick. He had compassion. He touched their eyes. There's a corresponding action with every feeling of empathy, sympathy that he's going through. He responded and did something. I'm afraid what we do in our society is we see injustice, but we don't do anything about it. We see a need, but we don't do anything about it. What if we were to have the heart of Christ where we saw a need and we stepped up and we became a part of the solution? That's compassion now. Whenever the empathy, sympathy turns to action, when love puts skin on and you get out and you do something with it, Jesus had compassion over cities that were without God. Think about it like that. He wept over the city of Jerusalem because of their lost state. We got an email just this morning from our team that's uh, on the way back, probably on their plane now from Paris to, to here. They were just coming back from West Africa. Stacey Ash wrote this morning, sent it to a few of us, and she sent this email. I want to read just one paragraph of it. We welcome three new believers into this West African village, into the kingdom. It says one of them was the Dugutigi. The Dugutigi is the Bamana word for the chief of the village. We welcome the new chief, the chief into the kingdom of God. Dugutigi apparently made a decision after December team, which was Caleb's team that was there last. 
His wife had been discipled by a lady we thought was the only woman believer in the village. She heard creation to Christ and was ready to accept uh, uh, the peace of Jesus. There are now three known women believers and five or six uh, men. One of the men is blind, which makes him an excellent listener and storyteller. Here is a village that in December of this past year, no believers. Our church has gone twice. And you're seeing the beginnings of new believers popping up inside of this village. Abominous speakers. They don't speak English. They're just, they're just without Christ. Christ has compassion for villages and cities and neighborhoods of people who don't know Christ. Hurting people without help. Whenever he goes to Lazarus' tomb, what does he do? He sees people crying and weeping. They're they're hopeless. The, The resurrection hasn't become a reality. In fact, Jesus preaches a message that I am the resurrection, but they're hopeless. They still don't see hope. And what does he do? He raises Lazarus from the dead. And also, while he was there, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. uh, The third thing, Jesus had compassion on children without love. In fact, he just kind of does a spin on it here. And he basically has any sense of abandonment or any sense of abuse. He has zero tolerance for. Let me read Matthew 18, verse 6 to you. If you give them, children, a hard time bullying and taking advantage of their simple trust, you'll soon wish you hadn't. You'd be better off dropped in the middle of the lake with a millstone tied around your neck. Jesus has zero tolerance for abuse, neglect, and so forth. He does it because he has compassion. Compassion, again, is always results in action. You just have sympathy. You just have empathy if it doesn't move you to action. Let me tell you about a time in Lori and I's life where we had great sympathy but we didn't have compassion. We were living in Africa and loving it and uh, had a family living literally probably 50 yards from our house, maybe not even that long, maybe 25 yards. They had two girls, Ruthie and Memory. And then we had our two kids at that time. Josh wasn't even born yet. And, uh, and they played together. They did everything together. They had sleepovers together. Our kids ate out of their food and... Their kids ate out of our food and we, their kids were with us and it was, it was just one family, really what it was, just living side by side. Richard was the dad's name and Richard had had a previous wife that had died of AIDS. And, uh, I'll try to make this story as short as possible, but it was a moment in time whenever we missed the opportunity because what we do in, in Zambia, whenever somebody is dying is you take them back to the village where they came from. So we loaded up in our truck all their family belongings, which wasn't much, and we took the family back to the village. We said goodbye to Richard on that day, and we never saw Richard again. He went to be with the Lord and died of AIDS. Memory was one of the daughters. Ruthie, because Richard had been married before, Ruthie had a mother somewhere else, and Ruthie went to live with her mother. But Memory's mother had already died, and now her dad was dead. And at this point, memory becomes a second-hand slave to the family. She gets passed around from uncle to uncle and family to family. Nobody wants to raise her. Nobody wants to 
to, to help her out. We're going on about our life. In fact, we've moved back to America by now. We don't even have a contact with memory. She couldn't write us if she wanted to. She wouldn't have the money to afford the stamp to write us. She gets anything left over from the mills. We find this out years later, by the way. We find this out and we could have done something then. We could have even done something whenever she was being passed around from uncle to uncle because we still live there. But what we had was sympathy for her. We had sympathy for her. We wanted to give her money and fix the problem. We wanted to, to get her, get, put her in school and fix the problem. And what we should have done and we didn't do until finally about four or five years ago, God woke us up because we should have adopted memory. We got some bad news from, from her in, a, in an indirect message way. And so literally from that, we got that news on a Saturday morning. I can remember Lori telling me because she opened up her email and got this email and could not believe that we had got this email from her indirectly. And uh, it moved us. And this time we were going to do something about it. So that was on thir- Saturday by Tuesday or Wednesday of the next week, I was on a plane for Zambia. We'd contacted congressmen, and we were going to do everything we can to bring memory back to America. And she was going to be our child, and we were going to raise memory and give her every opportunity. We got, oh, I got over there because I was the only one who went. I got over there and found out that memory was now actually married and had a child, and it became a very complicated mirage of stuff that we had to go through. Memory wanted to leave her husband and come with us and move to America because her husband is in an abusive situation. She wanted to leave and come with us, but it was too complicated and I couldn't do that. It was not possible at that point. She was going to bring her baby and move, move in with us. And long story short is we missed an opportunity. And Lori and I have spilled a lot of tears over that. Because we had an opportunity while we still lived in Africa. We had an opportunity while we still saw her. We had an opportunity while she was hurting without a mother or a father to embrace her and to make her our child. But we had sympathy, not compassion. Compassion moves you to action. Jesus saw Mary. Jesus saw John. And he did something. He felt something. That was the emotional response, and he did something, which leads me to the second response. Community is a practical response. So what do you do whenever you're hurting? What does Jesus do as he's about to leave this earth and his ministry is finished after 33 years? He saw, but he also spoke. He didn't just see. He did something about it. It's not a theological thing. It's more of a practical thing that happens here. It's very, though it has become theological to some denominations. For example, in the Catholic Church with the statement here that is made, it kind of, it kind of elevates Mary. So he said basically, woman, he said, this is your son. <laughs> he said, son, this is your, this is your mother. And he kind of ties them together. So in, in this one statement of Jesus, but really, what was he doing? The Catholic Church has made it to be where they're elevating Mary. That she's over the disciples. Well, the problem with that, I have a problem with that, is because you never find Mary anywhere else after this. All right, Mary's gone. If she would have been over the disciples, she would have been leading the first church in Jerusalem. She would have been in Acts. She's never mentioned in the book of Acts. So I can't see her as being over the disciples. The Protestant response is this. Well, it's just, uh, it's just the Christian, uh, it's just 
Jesus being compassionate for Mary and giving, giving John to her. Hey, listen, Mary's only about 47. She's not like she's in a convalescent home, all right? So she's not, she's not exactly can't take care of herself place. The closer I get to 47, uh, I, I feel that. But, you know, I'm not ready for a convalescent home. Neither was Mary. So what is it that he's doing here? I think there's maybe some middle ground that we can reach here. That, 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 that Mary was significant and that John was significant in the whole relationship thing. And so what does Jesus do? My best friend is suffering. My mother is suffering. Let's link them together. Let's create a community dynamic between them. Hey, Mary, you've got John. And hey, John, you've got Mary. He created the first small group at the foot of the cross. That's exactly what he did. He creates this small group and he puts them together. He says, hey, you all have each other. Because here's the reality about pain. We're all talking about pain here. How do you process through the pain of life? And that is this, is that when we go it alone, we're going to suffer worse than if we go with each other. I know in our culture, we, we, we are born into this world and we are dependent. We teach our children to grow up and to be independent. But what we need is to grow up and to become interdependent where I need you and you need me and we need each other and I can't go through life because there's a lot of betrayal, there's a lot of abandonment, there's a lot of abuse, there's a lot of things out there that are going to hurt me and I, we need each other. And if we're going to make this work, we're going to have to do it together. When you go alone, you isolate yourself, you set yourself up for failure and you set yourself up to lose. Proverbs 18 verse 1. I want us to read this out loud together. Read it with me. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all. You don't want to go it alone. You won't make good decisions. You will hurt more. You will, you, you, you will seek your own selfish desires. You need people in your life who will kick you in the pants from time to time. And you need people in your life who will embrace you at the same time. And you're only going to have that when you're in a community with one another. Now, i got three sub-points there, and I didn't give them to the first gathering, so I'm not going to give them to you because I'm also out of time. And so let me, let me go to a BHAG that I want to present to you today. I want to challenge you to find community, to find solid believers that you can link up with. Now, we try to create pockets of it, environments of it, where you can connect and believe with people and pour into one another, and they pour into you. We call it body life groups, all right? If that stigma doesn't work for you, call it whatever you will. I had, look, look like this. You need people that you can connect with. And in this small community called Body Life Groups, because the people on this side of the room are not going to connect with people on this side of the room. All right? Unless you, Scott Miller, intentionally get to know Tanya McCaslin over here, you're not going to know each other. It's just too much, too much going on, too services, too many people flowing in and out. So you and I both need community. Exactly what John needed, exactly what Mary needed, he put them together. He put them together and they go off and they, they work through life and sort through life together. For example, let me talk about uh, what we're going to do. From So right now we have 33 body life groups out there. All right, They're all over the map and different places and times. We want to, by Easter, listen to this, have... Double that, 66 to maybe 70 different body life groups. Because we need that. You need that. We're not a complete church without that. You aren't going to do it alone. You shouldn't do it alone. Connecting with different people in different locations. 
For example, let me tell you this. Uh, uh, the, the women who are in the Stuck Bible Study Series right now, we did a survey. Only 12% of our women in the Stuck Bible Study Series are in a small group at all. What if this, what if you, the ladies that are in that stuck Bible study series right now, because it's going to end really, really soon. What if right now you said, okay, ladies at this table, we just opened up our soul and poured out to one another. Let's continue the journey. Let's stay with one another. If only 12% of us are in a body life group, then where are we going to go from here? Keep on marching. What's going to happen in, on, on Easter Sunday is we're going to start a new series of messages called What on Earth Are You Here For? Wouldn't it be great to figure out what on earth you're here for with a group of other people who are trying to figure out what on earth they're here for? That's what we're going to work on. If you're in Financial Peace University right now, you're in Perspectives right now, you don't have a group that you're in, why don't you take the people that you're connecting with right now and keep going with them? I'll tell you right now, I'm going to do this. I've already got one man who told me after the, after the end of the first service, I'm waiting for about six or seven other men. I'm going to start a men's singles group only. If you're not in a group already, if you're already in a group, stay in that group. Um, all right, because there, there's enough other single men, men who are going to want to figure out what on earth are they here for. And we're going to hang out together and we're going to try to figure that out for six weeks. I just say this, try it for six weeks, see if it works for you. If it doesn't work, close it down. We'll give you all the resources. You just hang on and we'll get more information to come on that. I say all that not to promote a program. I say all that because you're like Mary and you're like John. You need someone. I need someone. We need someone. How are you going to deal with the pain of life? That's the question of the day. Number one, you're not going to do it alone. Otherwise, you're going to sink out there. You're going to isolate yourself out there. You're going to spiral down out there. You're going to fall apart out there. Don't do it alone. Get in community. Number two, get to know our compassionate Savior. If you don't know Him, get to know Him. Let me close with a story that, that just amazed me this week when I first read it. It's in her book, Ellen Vaughn's book, The God Who Hung on the Cross. She tells the story of a village in northern Cambodia. And we have a team going to Cambodia this summer, by the way. You can learn about that this afternoon at 12.15. Not a commercial break, just making a statement. <laughs> she finds out from Pastor Tusing, not his real name, but there's the name of the book. On September 90, in 1999... He makes his way as a believer up to this northern village in Cambodia. And he enters this village to share the gospel of Christ. And he, as he starts telling the stories about Jesus and what lead up to Jesus and all this kind of stuff and about him hanging on a cross, the, the village just erupts with joy. True story. You can read it for yourself. The village says, we have been waiting for 20 years for someone to tell us about this God who hung on a cross. He asked them, tell me more. And so they talked about in 1970s when the Khmer Rouge came in and the Communist Party took over the country and started killing people just, if you disagreed with them, just mass graves, mass killings everywhere. They would go from village to village. If you did not sign on to the Communist Party, then you would be just, just be killed. It was, it was a, it was a disaster. It was a holocaust in Cambodia itself. 
the soldiers pull into their village and they line everyone up and they figure out who's not for them and who's against them and they line them up and they line them up and they give them shovels and they tell them to start digging their own graves and they did they dug their graves they turned turned around and defaced their graves at this point everyone in the village starts erupting they're crying out to Buddha they're crying out to any gods that they've ever heard of they're crying out to their dead ancestors they're crying out to spirits and there was one lady they said in the village who started crying out because she'd heard a story when she was a child about a God who hung on a cross. She starts crying out to this God that hung on a cross louder and louder and louder and louder. And as as she starts crying out, other people didn't know who they were going to cry out to, so they started crying out to the God who hung on the cross. The beautiful story is is that everything got quiet behind them. And so one started peering around and the other one started peering around and all of a sudden, all their, all the army was gone. And everyone that had dug their own grave lived. And they had been waiting for someone for 20 years to tell them about the God who had hung on a cross. My friends, I can tell you this with all my heart. He hung on a cross because he had love, not sympathy. He had compassion that resulted in action because he loves you and me that much. Oh, how he loves us. Would you pray with me? To the God who hung on a cross. We say thank you. We say we love you. We worship and adore you. And Lord, we thank you that you didn't have sympathy for us. We thank you that you didn't just give us accolades. Or you weren't just another good example for us. We thank you that you hung on a cross died so that we could live. You bore our sins so that we could be free from sin. And then you put us in community with one another. You you connect us with one another and you called it a church. And so Father, today we come with pains and hurts and bruises and bangs and disappointments and abuses and hang-ups and hurts and and some habits that we need to get rid of. And Lord, we come with all of this trash and this garbage, and we don't know what to do with it, but we thank you that the God who hung on a cross loved us and did it because he loved us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for loving us.